What is the science of reading? What are leaders doing to accelerate reading achievement? We answer these questions and more in Science of Reading Leadership, Guiding Minds, Transforming Lives, powered by Just Right Reader. Hi, we are so excited to be here today. We are just incredibly fortunate to have Zaretta Hammond here with us to talk more about literacy and culturally responsive teaching. Zaretta Hammond is a former English and writing teacher turned equity freedom fighter. Since leaving the classroom, she has designed curriculum and professional development for the National Equity Project and the Annenberg-funded Bay Area School Reform Collaborative in the San Francisco Bay Area. She is a trained facilitator in anti-bias processes and has facilitated groups focused on learning to talk about issues of racial politics and privilege. Her primary work has been linking instruction, equity, and literacy. Welcome. We're so excited to have you, Zaretta. I am happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, this is exciting. I'm super excited about getting to know you. So let's just jump right in. Let's, I want to know what got you into the field of education. How did you come to this work? I think it was kind of a, a, a natural path. You know, I write in my book, Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain, a little bit about my story. My mother had three children by the time she was 22. Um, she, you know, dropped out of school and at the same time was adamant about making sure her children got an education. My, both my grandparents were not literate. My grandmother learned to, I think, sign her name when she was in her 70s. I remember that vividly. So she always instilled what in us this notion that education was important and uh, distinguished between schooling and education. So when she finally got into a welfare-to-work program, she was a library technician. And so that whole piece was uh, focused on making sure that, um, you know, we fell in love with books, but you can't fall in love with books until you can actually read them. And so that was kind of my uh, focus is kind of her energy and commitment to making sure that we were getting a quality education inside the classroom and outside, mm -hmm. you know, after was come, you know, wait on mom at the library and read till, you know, it's time to go. So I got exposed to a lot and built my background knowledge and started to really, really fall in love with writing. I became a writing teacher when I was in the classroom and was the teacher of record for that classroom. And you know, by extension, I also had to help students become better reading comprehenders. And so that meant mm -hmm. really understanding how reading happens in the brain and one thing led to another. And I got in, you know, enamored with brain science and <laughs> it just was a fire in me after that point, just knowing the legacy of my grandparents, knowing the commitment of my mother and then just falling in love with the science of learning, uh, even before they were calling it that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. I love those I love ideas it. of schooling versus education and um, that you really can't learn to fall in love with books until you actually know how to read. It's really difficult to, to love reading when you can't actually do it. <laughs> 
It's so important. Here's the thing I'll add to that, particularly as we think about, you know, what does instructional leadership look like for district folk, central office, as well as folks that are guiding teams of educators and instructional coaches. I hear this a lot. We want kids to love reading. It's like, right, then you actually need to teach reading. <laughs> and, uh, and what that means is it's not turnkey, right? It's up close. Mm-hmm. Learning to read is up close and personal. Miss. Alexander was my first grade teacher. And I remember sitting on the rug next to her. And now we would call what she was doing guided reading, right? But we were having a conversation about the book. And I find there are so many misunderstandings about how the brain learns to read and how we actually put the pedagogy in place to make sure that that happens. So District leaders, our site-based leaders are key to making sure the right things are happening in the instructional core of the classroom. And that can't be with kind of, you know, trite. Uh, we want children to love learning and let's yeah. just have more books on the shelf and, and let's just have more diverse books. Listen, more brown faces in a book is not going to tell you how long vowels work. <laughs> Yes. That is so true. And before we get too far, we know that, so you are the author of the book, Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain. And so before we get too far, we just want to make sure um, for for our sake and for our listeners' sake, we would love to know how you define culturally responsive teaching, um, just so that we're all on the same page with that. Well, it's not a matter of how I define it. I don't think it's that relative. And I do think that's a problem right now, right? They're shaking that stuff on everything like it's hot sauce. Um, but that the terminology exactly. has been defined, the concept and the process by Dr. Asa Hilliard, Dr. Gloria Latson-Billings, who actually coined the term. And really what it is, is um, several things coming together. One being having uh, uh, the relationships in, with students, making sure an environment is devoid of microaggressions and uh, 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 racism and bias in a way that would trigger the brain to not feel it can it is safe to learn. So we're now talking about this as psychological safety. Um, but I extend the way people typically are talking about it to lift up those elements that Dr. Hilliard and Dr. Lance and Billings mention, but don't get a lot of airtime. And that is the academic prowess, building the capacity, the cognitive capacity of students in terms of understanding that this is what inequity has focused on. So culturally responsive teaching is not a prescription. It's not a program. It's not online with literacy and culturally responsive teaching. The set of tools, pedagogical tools, kind of a stance, mindset, mental models that allow teachers to actually create the right conditions for students, be in right relationship to get the students in their zone of proximal development. And understanding that it has to be in the context of anti-racism, so the student is not always on alert and under threat, like Dr. Claude Steele talked about in Stereotype Threat. And at the same time, still focuses on instruction. Now that's a mouthful, but that's not what people are saying, right? They're just chalking it It up to, I'm honoring my students' cultural identity. I don't know what the hell that means. (laughs) Um, 
because again, if you have never done that and you've let microaggressions run, you know, loose in your classroom, oh, all of a sudden you know how to honor cultural identities. We are oversimplifying it, you know, so that's a whole road we don't necessarily have to go down. But my main reason in creating the Ready for Rigor frame was to help people talk about all the areas of culturally responsive teaching and not to reduce it to this oversimplified kumbaya, it's a small world, you know, mentality. It is not that. I actually talk about that as the distinctions of equity, right? Multicultural education, social justice education. One is about belonging, diversity and inclusion. That is multicultural education and it has its benefits. Social justice education, beneficial. It is really focused on raising students' consciousness, one of the things that Dr. Gloria Ladson-Billings does talk about. But neither one of those are focused on instruction. But when you get to culturally responsive teaching, the way Dr. Asa Hilliard talked about it, it is improving and reclaiming the cognitive capacity of students who have been historically marginalized, tracked, and their cognition underdeveloped. And to me, this is the connection with literacy. Anti-literacy was the first effort to underdevelop cognition. Because what we know is what the science of reading, I mean, the science of how your brain learns to read, tells us is just that rewiring of the brain makes more brain matter, more gray matter in your brain, right? We can, we can actually do higher order thinking and processing simply because we learn to read, not even because of what we read. And so this, because it's not a natural thing, you know, we'll stand up and learn to walk when we're 10 or 11 months old, but a human will not learn to read unless they're taught to read. And that rewires the brain. So we know if we just look historically, that that is the first pillar of an effort to create inequitable conditions. And that's just the bedrock of our American education system. Um, and that's just a historical fact. Yeah, you you have said so much, right? And it's getting me so excited because I love your work and I love everything you just said. And I want to sit here, I, we can unpack <laughs> it for days, right? We could be unpacking this for days. Um, one of the things I want to really focus in on that you kind of touched on is this idea of teaching reading, um, culturally responsive, and how do we teach reading? So really, can we unpack and can you talk to us about what educators should be thinking about, focused on, considering when they are teaching reading and how they can be very culturally responsive in that act of teaching. I think that's uh, a lot for us to unpack in this short podcast. We can start <laughs> because again, I think the our efforts to do this kind of quick unpacking or tell us how we can be more culturally responsive. You know, I think what we have a tendency to do is to think that it has to sound like social justice. I have to be talking about mm-hmm. racism. They don't understand mm-hmm. that reclaiming that cognitive capacity building is part of that. And the way we're doing that is the responsive part. We have a tendency to look at the culture part 
and culture being a euphemism for a lot of white educators who don't talk about these things as uh, racism. So in their mind, culture means racism, and I must be talking about racism. So this is why district leaders really have to do their due diligence in helping people understand what culturally responsive teaching is, defining it, and having corrective processes when people are misdating it, right? It's like a bad case of telephone. Remember that game we used to play? <laughs> yes. Start by saying something that sounded very sane, a little simple sentence. And by the end, you know, the sixth kid, it was garbled like, what? You know, that's not what I said. So I do think this is really one of the key tasks for district leaders. So when we're talking about what does it mean to promote uh, uh, literacy and, and liter reading development in culturally responsive ways, what we're talking about is how do we leverage the schema kids are coming in mm. with, right? Because that's mm. what culture is. Culture is how our brain wires the knowledge it takes in, so it gives us meaning. And the, the continuum is individualism and collectivism. And we're all so, somewhere on that um, continuum, either by how we were socialized zero to seven and then going into other environments where we add on. So it's not static, it's dynamic, but the, we all have a foundation of how we start to organize information when we take it in. So mm -hmm. if you grow up in a collectivist culture, there are a few things that you're going to do is you're going to need to talk to process the information. So one of the things I don't see a lot are talk centers or, or, or talk structures in the classroom is some weak turn and talk. And I usually have an expletive that goes before weak. Um, <laughs> Because it is like friends just don't let friends do a turn and talk and call that we're having discussions in our classroom. And this is what's happening. So you have kids who have been socialized as part of learning and in their home and in their larger community to talk through things. And then they get to school and they get dinged for those. Right. And, and we have a pedagogy of compliance. So the typically large numbers of black and brown indigenous kids are going to be in those classrooms because we want to control certain groups of kids, particularly their lower performance. Like it's ticked all the boxes that actually work against leveraging the students' schema and ways of learning that they bring from home so that they actually can rewire their brain. So that's one of the first things. How or do you have structures that are yes. flexible and that are varied for kids to talk and process? Some that are guided by the teachers, some that are containers. Students know how to behave in them, but it's a little more free-flowing. Uh, it's not so highly monitored all the time. And I'm not talking about just a free-for-all in terms of talking. But most teachers have nothing that's varied. It's just one or the other. All talk is going through the teacher or all talk is being monitored and I tell you to talk to your elbow partner. Yes. Yeah. We've taken, exactly. um, you know, this pillar exactly. of conversation and open dialogue and we've tried to do tips and tricks. Um, and like you said, compliance, we've tried to put all of these things into a box of compliance, just like you said. So, yeah, I think that um, as you're saying, you know, unpacking what it means to teach reading with a culturally responsive um 
lens and pedagogy is really about understanding kind of the home learning of your student. What type of collectivist culture? Because not all collectivist cultures are are the same. They are some design principles that are consistent, but depending on how it presents itself, it's going to look very different. Like I had the the opportunity and honored to be in uh, Alaska and working with some Alaska Native uh, uh, groups of students and educators who were concerned about their development. And uh, the way that collectivism shows up for them looks very different than in my African-American culture, which is uh, very, you know, uh, expressive, lots of talking, we're not quiet, <laughs> and the louder the volume, that must be where the good things are happening, right? <laughs> like, oh, well, let me go see what's going on over there. Not so much in Alaska Native culture, because quietness is honored, and it's not a problem. It's just a way of being. It doesn't mean that people aren't expressive. It just doesn't look to the, the eye that is used to a different expression. So then for some teachers, that becomes problematic. You're too quiet. And now, you know, if, when you understand how the culture processes, then you're able to create some of those structures in classroom that leverage the schema and the information processing that the student already comes with. Because they're coming with something. The brains aren't jelly. But what we're asking students to do is to do school, leave behind the fact that you've been learning for seven years and do this. And that, I mean, really, it speaks to a comment um, that I heard you say um, before that all instruction is cult culturally responsive. But the question is, to whose culture are we responding? Right. So it's really about understanding and knowing the culture that we're responding to, to be able to really speak to it um, as we need to. Go well, on. Yeah. The thing, Terry, I don't think we need mm. to speak to it. Mm. And so this, again, is the orientation that we're speaking mm. about something versus I'm creating an environment and I'm giving you opportunities to mm. process and these are more structures and routines versus what we're speaking about. Mm -hmm. I do think this perpetuates the misconception that culturally responsive is social justice and gotcha. we're talking. We're not talking. I'm learning how long vowels work and I actually may need to use a combination of talking and manipulatives. And I actually can talk to my friend because that kind of flow and collectivist culture, right? And a, a culture of apprenticeship that typically does not happen in individualistic culture. It's competitive, right or wrong. It's very, you know, it's got that dichotomy, whereas there's more of a culture of apprenticeship in collectivist culture. So again, that's not typically set up in our classrooms. So understanding how that works. I think also when we think about what we should focus on, like long vowels. So it, even if a student from multilinguals and others coming from another culture or in another linguistic uh, um, uh, area, then being able to have contrastive analysis. How does that look in your culture or in your language? How would we say that? Mm -hmm. So this is that notion of contrastive analysis as a process. Mm -hmm 
to help students actually say, I already know something. So now we're going to extend your schema by adding to it. Mm -hmm. But this is not what district leadership is doing. They're trying to turnkey everything. And this is actually creating more of a problem because they want to say we're fixing it or we're addressing it. And we know the NAEP data is telling us that, you know, reading scores for African-American, indigenous students, and some multilingual students has not progressed since 2005. What are we doing? We're getting lots of money. We got all kinds of programs popping off. So district leadership really needs to step back and say, what's the challenge between having all this rich resource and what's not being translated in the instructional core when teaching and learning is between teacher and small groups of students or one-to-one? We don't teach reading whole class. So leaders can go in and look. Is it always whole class? Because if it's kids sitting in a circle on the carpet, we're not learning to read. We're watching the teacher do some stuff. Right, right. This episode is brought to you by Just Right Reader. Extend phonics instruction, strengthen school-home partnerships, and accelerate reading achievement with take-home decodable packs from Just Right Reader. Personalized take-home packs make phonics fun and accessible for families. Every book comes with a video phonics lesson and writing pages to help readers reinforce their decoding and writing skills. To learn more, visit JustWriteReader.com. Zaretta, we've been kind of talking about the achievement gap just through this conversation and talking about district leaders, maybe even building leaders, um, what the things that they need to do. So I would love for you, because we've kind of talked about what we need it needs to look like in the classroom. What is that professional development or what do district leaders need to do to get that instruction that they want in their classrooms? What have you seen through your work um, in terms of consultation or just, you know, working closely with districts? What have you seen to be effective district leadership um, actions to, to make that happen? I think that we have to work from the in- instructional core out. Right. We have to work. This is what Dr. Richard Elmore says. So when we think about reading development, what actually needs to be accomplished? So we know students need to understand how print works at the earliest grades. But then after that, it's long vowels. How do long vowels work? That's our variation. So this is decoding. And then we have advanced decoding. This is morphology and syllabication. Because I can't pronounce big words if I don't understand if it's an open or closed syllable. So there are just some things. And I talk to teachers who have no idea about syllabication. So where is the leadership to make sure here are the six things, teachers, you need to understand. Here's the professional development that you need to get. And it can be asynchronous and it can be synchronous, meaning we're all getting together. So I think districts need to reimagine what professional learning in this area looks like. It does not take a lot to actually create a number of short videos for teachers who are understanding these things. Here are the six syllable types here, you know, and this is how for our student population. Now we're going to put all that in a context. We have a high number of multilinguals or we have students who are using African-American vernacular because that's where we're playing. 
And that's where I think that that's where the disconnect is. We have so many teachers going through um, foundational skills training and really learning how how people learn to read. And, and that's the piece I think we're missing is really connecting it now to the students in our districts. And our, yeah, absolutely. Our context, meaning the students, the community, how language is being used, and then being able to actually have teachers be able to have that uh, group in-person learning together asynchronous, once you can differentiate like, okay, going through that, I know I need to beef up my understanding of morphology. Here's a set of videos, right? And and the beauty of it is once a district creates those sorts of resources, then it, teachers are, are able to kind of continue their capacity building. And the other thing I think is an important ingredient is, is inquiry, collaborative inquiry, meaning Teachers don't just focus on the strategy, and this is a hallmark of what it means to be responsive. So in culturally responsive teaching, we we keep acting like it's a, a whole thing, and we don't really understand what it means to be responsive, meaning instructional decision-making in the moment when the student is stuck, what will we do? This is what DeFore's Third PLC question is, what will we do when the student doesn't learn it or gets stuck, right? And so it's having those skills. My student isn't learning the long, hey, what do I do about that? Because too many kids are ending up in tier two, mm. uh, uh, you know, instruction because their general education tier one teacher does not know how to help the student when they're stuck. So now the student gets into this black hole of special education, which shouldn't be that, but this is what happens, not through their own fault because the teacher doesn't have capacity. So this is what the district has to address and disproportionately guess who's going into those situations, tier two and tier three. So I think being able to understand that learning to read is an individual process and it's dynamic. Meaning that we have to work with it, right? We have to practice it. We have to be able to not just read, but to have guided reading. Meaning I'm going to have a conversation just like chess players would about what happens when I get stuck or, hey, okay, the word house, but you've said horse and hay and some other H word. And it's like, okay, let's stop there. And what do we know about that? Let's look at that word. Right now we can focus on the the vowel. What vowel is that? So now we're having a conversation. You're coaching the student. I don't see us doing a lot of that where the student is understanding, oh, this is how I changed my learning move. Oh, that's my misconception about that, right? We don't make the space and the time and the opportunity to apprentice students into building their capacity. We're looking for turnkey. I've taught the student this strategy. And professional learning has to turn from focus on the strategy to actually how do we create the right conditions Ooh. and coach the student at the, in the instructional core. And I think you probably just answered my next question because um, we had a conversation with Dr. Tatum a few weeks ago and uh, he got me all excited because one of the things I love to do is bring a love of learning. A, a love of reading to my girls. I have three girls. 
And I asked him the question, you know, how do we get our kids to love reading? And you've really talked about what do we need to do as teachers? Um, how do we bring our students to an understanding of how this learning impacts them and how it's respond, how we respond to their environment, their culture? So how do we make the, how do we begin to bring all of this into, now they can read, right? Now they know how to decode. How do we bring them to a space where they can really begin to love and own it? You talked about going to the library with your mom, you know, and really reading until she got off. So how do we bring them to that space I, to really love it? I do think we need to first, like, put a check on that. We keep leading with, we want them to love it. And yet and still the data is telling us we're not getting them the foundational skills where they mm -hmm. would feel competent, right? Competence precedes confidence. Mm -hmm. I cannot love something if I'm not confident in it and want to do it again and again. So you've got to be able to help teachers get students to the point where their sense of competence now is like, not only can I do that well, but what I'm reading is drawing me in because I can read it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's our first order of business. No one likes training for a marathon if all you can run is a mile and a half and you got to get up to 26. Constant, right. no stopping and huffing and puffing on you with your hands on your knees, oh, right? So me. the fact is nobody's going to like that. So we keep selling, oh, you're going to love it. And so now my brain is confused. Mm. I am not loving this. You are lying to me. So now you've eroded your mm -hmm. own trust with the student. Mm. So the way that your girls love it is because you've created an environment for them to get good at it. Mm. And the more they get good at it, the more you actually can give them things that like, oh, here's something that's tasty too. I did that <laughs> with my own children, right? I would, for my son who was, when he was going through middle school, I just buy books, you know, Barnes and Noble slip four under his door. Cause you know, they never come out and talk to you when they're middle school. And then <laughs> I'm so glad I'm not you know, the only one. <laughs> and then he, I'd walk past, you know, a few hours later and there'd be one that was pushed back under there. Like, mm -hmm. Oh, you like those three, but okay. Note to self. You know, so again, mm -hmm. I'm feeding him constantly, but I'm feeding him so he can find what is getting his interest. You cannot love something. Nobody loves just to read. I'm just going to read the phone book because I love to read. That's not how we love to read. So I think we oversell it as teachers. Like, oh, you're going to love to read. I'm like, this is hard. I'm going to stop in a minute. Right. <laughs> you know? So. I think That's really, good. you know, and I love Dr. Tatum and I think he's onto something because even what he says in, you know, uh, his books is this notion of helping students see that what you glean from reading is going to be purposeful to you. So it's worth the mm -hmm. effort and the mental effort to put in. It's going to feel a little like a stretch, but if that stretch over time is going to pay off, you're going to feel it's going to get easier. That's more realistic. That's so true. Then, oh, mm -hmm. you're just going to love it. Because the minute it gets hard, I'm going to say you're a liar. Yep. So true. Yeah. yeah so so true. I think just this is the whole piece of building trust with students. And I've seen that where people talking mm -hmm. about relationships and culturally responsive teaching. They want the sunny side of that. So let's not, you know, blow smoke at our kids because they catch on pretty quickly that they may be a little behind. 
I think another way that we can sell reading is mm -hmm. this is going to give you a power that is unmatched in anything you could ever have. You can use the analogy of playing sports for the boys who out there and the girls who play sports. It's like, yeah, you got to do your drills. That's how you get good. Look, that's what Kobe said. I go in early. I do these drills. I don't like the drills, but this is how we get good. So you're coaching them. And this is what I talk about in the alliance part of that relationship is like, I'm going to apprentice you into this, but I'm not going to actually tell you you're going to like it off the bat. Nope. It's going to feel hard, but you will be powerful and it's going to get easier and easier. That's more realistic about how reading happens for any student. That's actually extremely powerful. And yeah, very, very. Go ahead. I was just saying very little of the things that are worth having are easy to get, right? So, and, and reading is really no different. It takes some work yeah, right. to get to the, the reward. That's right. But this is more than, let me tell you about a growth mindset or a pet <laughs> I think this is the district leadership. Are exactly. you helping educators at every, you know, uh, tier of their interaction with teachers and students understand how to language that than just selling growth mindset? Because now you're blaming the victim. Teacher just get a growth mindset about doing this. Students just get a growth mindset. And it's not, that's not the problem. <laughs> and again, I think district leaders need to spend time on helping people shift mental models as well as to get strategies. But if all we focus on is turnkey strategies, yes. we're going to keep seeing the same results in reading development that we're seeing. Absolutely. Uh, Zaretta, before we, we have one big question for you, but before we get to our last question, we want to know how can our listeners find out more about you and more about your work? Where should we send them? Oh, you can come to my website to sign up for my newsletter. That's oh, a best way to stay in touch with me. Um, I used to run a blog. I haven't done that in a while, but at that same blog site, you know, crtinthebrain.com, they can sign up. And I usually do, um, you know, pretty uh, uh, robust newsletters, giving them tips and resources. I am running a series of master classes, right? Small, high leverage things that can be done to build their capacity to be more responsive, culturally responsive educators. Um, those are the main place. They can follow me on Instagram and learn a little more about that as well as um, on, I guess we're calling it X now, um, <laughs> formerly known as Twitter, <laughs> at Ready for Rigor. And right. it's a good way to just kind of, you know, I post and respond and other people when I'm out in the world. I think those are some starting places in, in terms of people connecting. I always love to hear what educators are up to. I try to find myself um, uh, regularly in teachers' classrooms. And I think, again, instructional core out. We need to understand what's happening there and working shoulder to shoulder with teachers. So, um, yeah, that's what I'm up to. Because like I said, I consider myself a boots on the ground teacher rather than a researcher. I know people talk about, you know, oh, your research. I'm like, that's because we it's it's a practical research because it comes from what we actually are doing and learning in real time. That's exciting. 
Okay, so we always ask um, those who have joined us on our podcast uh, one final question that we ask everybody. And that question is, what are two things that leaders can do to accelerate reading achievement? I think they can reimagine what professional learning and capacity building look like for teachers. And as I mentioned earlier, it's leveraged creating asynchronous resources, not just sending them to someone else's, but resources that are about your context. If the population, student population has changed and you have more multilinguals, then put the training that they've received from letters or other, uh, uh, um, you know, professional schools of uh, reading development, bring it into and put it in context. That's what makes it culturally responsive. You're responding to your context, who your families are and who your kids are. So that's one thing I would say. I would also say, you know, word study is powerful. Uh, Leaders should help educators understand it's not just phonics. It's not just, you know, close reading of text and grade level text that it is really a synthesis of the student getting super excited about how words work and how language works. The best inroad to that is word study. You know, kids are always coming across words. You know, young people are always coming up with new lingo. And I mean, they are just like word masters, right? And we don't leverage it enough. So I think ways in which we can take the research that's out there, the programs we build, and district leadership can say, how do we leverage our teacher leaders, our professional developers at the district level to come together and actually contextualize our learning, our professional learning, so that students see themselves in that learning. They're excited about kind of what it is. And it doesn't mean everything has to revolve around hip hop. doesn't mean everything has to be some kind of, you know, street culture, uh, youth culture thing. Just what's exciting for kids. And that means we'd have to talk to kids, (laughs) you know, Talk to our students. That's a novel idea, right? But being able to do that, and particularly our kids who are furthest away and most disengaged. Mm. The kids that are there, they're mm. there. Good. You can give them a library mm. card and they're fine. We're worried yeah. about those kids who have disengaged and are just doing school. Yeah. That's yes. beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, Zaretta, you've been known to say that cultural culture is a powerful force in shaping how we see ourselves and the world around us. And I just want to thank you for, for giving us the time to reflect on this as leaders and really consider how, how we teach reading and how we use um, culturally responsive teaching in the brain and really starting at that instructional core. So thank you again for being with us. You are very welcome. Thanks for joining us. If you found this conversation valuable, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. We will see you next time on Science of Reading Leadership, Guiding Minds, Transforming Lives.